Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for August 2016. I am writer hyphen outraged that the BBC's top 100 films of the 21st century did not include a single Airbud film, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Writer hyphen reader hyphen, I don't give a fuck about the BBC's list of whatever it's made a list of because I'm on holiday, bitches, <laughs> Sophie Mayer. I, you are coming to us from where exactly? I am currently in West Seattle. Very nice. Um, on the Puget Sound, uh, where my cinema is the sunset. Uh, that certainly beats uh, me recording from Pakenham, uh, outside of Melbourne, where my local cinema is uh, no cinema. <laughs> I, I will be back in the cinema war in London pretty soon, but it's been, it's been good to be away from it. Excellent. And Am I allowed to admit that on this podcast? We, we have a very forgiving uh, audience. Um, as, as I've learnt over the years. Um, <laughs> we should mention that our guest is director of Red Dog, Boxing Day, Kill Me Three Times, and many, many others, Crib Stenders, and he will be joining us later on in the show. Um, but yeah, it is. Uh, we, we, we're going to start with the reviews, and I am also afraid to admit that uh, I have not been watching many films this year. And again, on a show that's predicated on the concept of us watching lots of films, this is a little uh, iffy. But I did go to the Melbourne International Film Festival, and I'd love to tell you about some of the highlights, including yeah. Pedro Almodovar's Julieta. Now, I don't think we've talked to any Almodovar since you've been on the show, Sophie. Are you a fan? No, I am a fan, and um, I am actually gutted to be missing that Almodovar season that is happening in London at the moment. They've had the man himself and many of his stars hanging out at the BFI. Uh, and also they've been screening some of the films that influenced him, which um, have not often been seen outside of Spain because they were made under the dictatorship. So that is, I am bummed about missing that. And uh, you can check out more about that on the BFI website. Well, I'm very happy to report that Julieta is a significant return to form following nice. I'm So Excited. It's, uh, yeah, really <laughs> great Hitchcockian melodrama. It's a soap opera, but it's told with this sort of suspense. When I was thinking about it afterwards, I realised it was actually quite a sad story. But given he told it in such a joyous way, you know, the cinematography, the music, the characters, the scenery, it's all so uplifting. Uh, I didn't actually realise it was sad while I was watching it. It's a really good film that I, I recommend you check out. Would you say up there with All About My Mother? That I think it needs some time some time to settle. I think how high in the canon it rates will uh, will take some time to figure out. But um, yeah, it's certainly a, a very enjoyable film. I also checked out Ben Wheatley's High Rise, which was actually on general release when I was in London. I didn't get to see it then. It's probably better that you didn't see it when it was in London, because in London it basically reads as a documentary. <laughs> a slightly prophetic documentary. Like, that film has caused the kind of crazy Brexit breakdown of society that I have fled. Right, yeah. It's, it's probably played very differently post-Brexit than pre-Brexit, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of both Ben Wheatley. I've been, in, you know, completely in the tank for him since Down Terrace. And I'm also a fan of... That subgenre in which societal microcosms exist within futuristic skyscrapers. <laughs> so the film itself was just, I, I thought, superb. I mean, it really played to the t what I like seeing in cinema. And I love that, like, his direction is so electric and he's got 
idiosyncratic shot construction and this really jarring cross-location editing that just, I don't know, it just draws me in. And the narrative is a bit, it's not as strong as it could be. I feel like a lot of the inciting incidents don't, aren't really clear, but I enjoyed the ride regardless. Um, I'll just run, run through some others. There's um, Sergei mm. Loznitska's documentary The Event about the fall of the mm-hmm. USSR. Uh, definitely recommend that. Kelly Reichardt's Triptych <gasps> Certain Women. Don't, uh, don't, don't, no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers other than, <laughs> you know, see it. Rowan Spong's gorgeous documentary Winter at Westbeth. Uh, Asghar Fahadi's The Salesman, which which isn't quite as great as his previous films for me, but um, it's Ferrari, so it's still great. And uh, Nicholas Winding reference The Neon Demon, which was an answer to the question, what if Vangelis scored a film that was written by David Lynch and directed by Lars von Trier? I know we've all asked that question at some point, and now we have an answer. It's it's such a strange film. It's uh, It's so... I mean, visionary is such a, a, a boring uh, descriptor, but it's it's almost essential to use because it, it's sort of faultless in that it refuses to abide by any recognisable rules of filmmaking or narrative, and so any deviation is so clearly his personality that... No, I don't know what it's I'm saying. It's an auteur film. <laughs> it's very much an auteur film, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was... I, my main thing about The Neon Demon is that it's fucking loud, mm. um, and I wasn't even in the same screen as the film that The Neon Demon was on. <laughs> so the Vangelis score, or the, you know, the sort of electronic score, we were doing a screening in the cinema next door, and Neon Demon was so loud, we almost did a feminist occupation at the cinema to try and get them to take the neon demon off because we were gentle, angry people. And it was, it was really messing with our vibe. So I'm not sure about like films that have Jenna Malone, lesbian necrophilia in them just as a micro genre. Um, (laughs) But I mean, he is, you know, I think if you like his style, like Mm. this is the most refin of all refin. It is, and and I should qualify it by saying I'm one of the weirdos who loved Only God Forgives, so take that into account before uh, taking my recommendation. So, yeah, the l- last film I'll talk about is uh, my favourite film of the festival and probably my favourite film of the year so far, which <gasps> is Olivia Assayas's Personal Shopper. Uh. Now, I, uh, I, I adored Clouds of... Sils Maria and yeah, I, uh, and I sort of went went to Personal Shopper on that basis, and it's such a strange film. It's 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 a ghost story, and then it's a tale of someone who's harassed via text message, and then it's a murder mystery, and none of it should really work together because it's it's all these jarring genres that are sort of sequential rather than you know combined. And but then they it does it all, when when we get to the conclusion, it, it it's clear that it's been a fully cohesive whole, and I'm stunned by the confidence he has in doing something so objectively strange. And honestly, between certain women and personal shop, I really think Christian Stewart is proving to be one of the most interesting actors of her generation. I I finally figured out what it is she's doing that interests me so much. And and she performs like she's one of those really stoic 1960s leading men where they don't give anything away. And it's almost like you know, the Kuleshov effect where we sort of uh, paste our own interpretations of emotions onto 
onto her expression and it's it's so different to what every other actress her of her generation is doing and uh, I was very impressed by her and and by the film well I haven't seen either of them and I'm super excited for both of them I'm particularly excited for certain women because one of the reasons that I wanted so much to come and visit the Pacific Northwest is seeing Kelly Reichardt's films because things always go so well for people in <laughs> Kelly Reichardt's Oregon. I was like, yes, I'm going to go and lose my dog and <laughs> shoot my horse and <laughs> chat with shit with Bonnie Prince Billy. It's going to be great. There, um, there really needs to be a Kelly Reichardt theme park, I think. Reichardt <laughs> land. <laughs> And she could style it because she was, you know, she started as Todd Haynes' production designer. So that would be cool. And so I love that thing of, you know, prepping to travel somewhere by by watching films that are set in that place. And I was very excited um, flying Air Canada into Vancouver to watch a film that was set in northern British Columbia. Mm. Um, Air Canada are really good at promoting Canadian films, which is good because, like, literally no one else is. <laughs> um, and this is a film that is a huge deal from a director who was recognised as a major auteur in the 90s, made two of the most, like, striking Canadian films, lesbian films, indie films. And this is her third film, had incre- uh, fourth film, incredible reviews at festivals in North America and has not left the bubble. So this is Patrizia Rosima's um, Into the Forest based on Jean Heglin's novel. It's kind of a gothic horror starring two of, of my favorite young actors, Ellen Page uh, and Evan Rachel Wood, who both seem like they are still 14 and yet they're, you know, they're probably both 30, right? They still have this like incredible passionate adolescent energy and we've kind of watched them grow up on screen and this is a film where they both get to play adults like young women who have to step up and become adults the conceit is very simple all the electricity in north america goes off they're living Mm -hmm. in rural british columbia with their dad played by callum keith rennie um, so this is like the most Canadian film ever of Canadian <laughs> films. It's like set in the forest, it's gothic, it has Callum Keith Rennie, it has music by Cat Power, that, I don't know, that's not particularly Canadian. What's fantastic about it is that all of the the incident, and there's a lot of dark stuff that happens, it arises from the situation in combination with the choices the characters make. Like there's no sense of a deus ex machina or forcing their hands, and there's such fascinating characters that you're just you're with them every step of the way and it builds tension out of the smallest things like mold growing or having to divide fuel up into fuel cans and you're just so aware that it's planting these small details that are going to lead to big crises big difficult decisions it's a film that has two women on screen for most of the screen time fighting with each other agreeing with each other slaughtering wild pigs together i just loved it it's just amazing it's so atmospheric such great performances fantastic cinematography i just wanted to watch it a million times and not watch anything else so i think Mm -hmm. It's my second favourite film of the year after Chevalier, the Athena Rachel Tsangari film. But the year is young. We'll see. I really want Into the Forest to, can we we do a Hell is for Hyphenates call out to get it an international 
release. This film should, you know, it's got two big performances by stars. The pig slaughtering is genuinely incredible. Yeah, let's let's yeah. let's get it out there. I mean, I mean, pig pig slaughtering sales agents. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily use pig slaughtering as a selling point. Yeah, the rest. I mean, the rest of it sounds fantastic. It felt like a really, you know, urgent and contemporary film. You know, I was living in Toronto when the Eastern Seaboard lost power in 2003, and that was only for one day. And I remember going to get breakfast the next morning, and there were two guys fighting over the last croissant in the deli. Like, civilization had already disintegrated, and it was less than 24 hours since the power had gone off. You know, the film captures just how dependent we are on electricity. Like, everything we do, access to money, access to fuel, access to food, it's really terrifying. And it's, you know, that's a, it's a great situation and, and it tells a fantastic and very beautiful story within it. Fantastic. I will definitely keep an eye out for it. Yeah. We now leave Sophie for the time being and jump back in time one week, much like a flashback in a movie by our filmmaker of the month, to welcome this month's guest, Kriv Stenders. Kriv, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lee. So please tell us, which filmmaker have you chosen for us? I have chosen Peter Weir. <laughs> that is excellent. He, uh, you know, with respect to present company, he has long been uh, my favourite Australian filmmaker. So I'm, uh, I'm delighted to talk about him. What made you choose him? Well, he, um, you know, when you asked me to pick someone, I was looking at your list and, and uh, there were some great directors there and people that I, I thought I'd, you know, they were already kind of taken. <laughs> And I've always kind of been very um, inspired by the generation of filmmakers before me, um, especially those from the 70s. And I thought, oh, fuck it, let's, I'll pick an Australian. And I guess the most seminal one or the most iconic one, I think, is Peter Weir. So he kind of changed my life when I was a kid, when I saw his films. And, yeah, he's probably been one of, the, one of my key inspirations throughout my kind of working career. Yeah. So Peter Weir it is. I was uh, I was wondering when you uh, said you'd chosen him if uh, if you'd seen any parallels between your work and his whether that was conscious or subconscious because he <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish oh my god you know I, I, if, if only if only <laughs> well he he is someone who refuses to stay within the confines of a single genre or style and you've made you know films like Red Dog and Boxing Day and Kill Me Three Times. You know very different types of films. Was there a part of you that because so many directors we talk about have one specific type of film they like making, and Weir is one of the few who really tries his hand at everything. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, yeah, he, he, that's why he's an inspiration. You know, he's made, um, uh, you know, his films. He's made an eclectic range of films, and each one is is unique. Whether they're flawed or not, they're all they're all trying to sort of do something. And, you know, whilst I'd never compare myself to him, I do love the fact that he's had a career like that. And I, and, and I admire that. And, yeah, I guess that's something that I try to, you know, I, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. You know, I want to I want to be making films into my 70s or my 80s. Hopefully. <laughs> and someone like him, filmmakers like him, I, I think are very important because they show you that there's a pathway in in life or in a career that, that isn't necessarily about getting good at one thing it's about exploring and being an adventurer and i think peter weir is very much a sort of a spiritual uh, adventurer in his films and that's why i love love his films you know he's he's got this um there's this yearning in all his films there's this sort of 
desire to sort of discover new territory, emotional territory that I find very exciting. And there, there, there aren't many filmmakers like him around. And the fact that he's an Australian, I find that fascinating because I think there's something about him being Australian, something about his upbringing and the context in which he began his career that I think has defined him. And again, as I keep saying, I find that very inspiring. Uh, what was it that first uh, made you sit up and notice him? Uh, what was the first film you saw? Well, I think it was, from memory, I think it was Picnic in Hanging Rock. My mother, my grandmother took me to see it when I was, God, when I was about 11. And it was the weirdest film for you know, a Latvian grandmother to take her son to. And it <laughs> completely blew me away. It firstly completely terrified me. And I didn't know what I was watching. And I was watching something that was Australian and was, you know, quintessentially Australian. The light, the sound, the mood, everything was what I'd sort of understood. And here it was on the big screen. And it was, it was scary. It was really disturbing. And, and the ambiguities in it were, had me enthralled. And I just loved it. I just went, what is this? This is something that I've never, ever seen before. And even as an 11-year-old, I was just um, awestruck. So that's that's I think, and then that made me when that's made by an Australian, and then I started buying um, this wonderful publication called Cinema Papers that came out every month, mm. and uh, and then got back issues and poured all all over those because there were these great, lengthy, really dense interviews with Peter Weir and with his heads of department about the making of of Hanging Rock, and I think that's really where my obsession and, and passion for film really sort of took hold. And the fact, I think what was so inspiring and so exciting was this was being done in Australia. This was something within my reach. This was something that was possible. This was something that was perhaps attainable at some point. Then, you know, I, I kind of, once I knew that Peter Weir was the guy that was sort of driving this and was the author, I guess, of, of that film, I just started, you know, looking forward to, to whatever he did next, which was The Last Wave. Yeah, The Last Wave was one I had not seen until recently. That was... Uh... It's an extraordinary film. Uh, it's Richard Chamberlain, isn't it? Yeah, Richard Chamberlain and David Gulpilil, and yeah, it's it's again. It had this, uh, I don't know, this this kind of spooky. You know, it's what David Lynch does really well. You know, just this mood, this very bold, very confident approach to the form. Uh, and again, it's Australian. You know, and he, and I again, I was so excited. Man, this guy's making a a, a sort of a genre movie, like a, a mystery psychological thriller but within a strange context. And I think that was the very first time that was sort of being done, and especially on that elegant level. Mm. You know, and, 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 and in that, I guess that, for want of a better word, that art house, uh, in that art house, premium art house kind of market. And even again, I think when that came out, I was, I was 13 or something, I was thinking, wow, this guy's really, really, really um, doing stuff. And obviously at the same time, when that was coming out, you had Mad Max coming out, the first Mad Max. And by that time, I'd seen The Cars That Ate Paris, mm. uh, which I hadn't seen up until then. I saw that on TV and I went, wow, this is great. This guy's <laughs> just like doing this weird stuff. And I was obsessed with The Cars That Ate Paris for, for, for a couple of years. And that coincided with Mad Max. And suddenly, here was this vibrant Australian cinema that wasn't just about period films, which is mm. what Annie Rock was, but it was about these, these sort of reinventing these genres, picking up from where people like Nick Rogue and Roman Polanski had sort of left off with their, with their European films and their English films. And here were these Australian filmmakers really playing with genre really inventively, using, using the resources, using, using the limited resources they had, again, really inventively, like continually reverse engineering their stories 
to the Australian landscape, to the Australian, I guess, to, to that Australian ambience. And then that I, that's when I started making short films. I started getting a Super 8 camera and started trying to make sort of Peter Weir and George Miller films in <laughs> suburban Brisbane. Are any of those available online? Uh, no, unfortunately, they're kind of lost masterpieces. There was one film I made um, called Sunday that I got a grant from when I was in high school. I got $1,000 to make a film. And I was in the paper and I was on TV. And uh, that that brought uh, that brought me to the attention of a couple of um, this group called the British Daredevils who were stunt uh, – there were stunties who used to do um, stunts at uh, motor shows or, you know, those racing ring shows. And they said, can we be in your film? And I was like all of – 14 and i said yeah sure so we had this stunt group <laughs> riding motorbikes and i was blowing up um outhouse toilets and they were doing wheelies and all sorts of things and i've got it i've filmed it all and unfortunately i've lost it it's somewhere in a in a, in a box somewhere but i i don't know i've got to look for it at my mother's house but uh <laughs> But that was the direct result of watching, you know, Peter Weir and George Miller. But Peter Weir really was the one that I think there was something, again, just this sort of spirituality to his work that I found really mesmerized me. I was just completely um, yeah, enthralled. It's interesting uh, watching, you know, his short films, watching not harder to find films, but le- less well-known films like The Plumber from 1979. The Plumber, yeah. I saw that when it came out on TV. And mm. that stars um, Ivar Kuntz, who's, who's um, a Latvian because I'm Latvian mm. as well, right. and, uh, and Judy Morris. And again, that film was like, wow, you know, this is a TV movie. And it was so creepy, so... I mean, I'd love to watch it again. I mean, that, that, that you know, I, I, that would be a great film to remake, I think. Um, yeah. uh, again, it, it, for that same audience, for a TV audience, I think it would be great to, to kind of revisit that material. Uh, and again, it's so Australian. It's so quintessentially Australian. Again, you know, the middle class and the working class. And mm-hmm. I think that film now would have such interesting uh, resonance. But yeah, yeah, no, he was, he, was, he, was, he was on fire at that point, I think, and still, still, I think, working in the Australian system and doing really remarkable work. Yeah, that the the idea that all of these dramas, saying you know, he can do like a period drama like Picnic at Hanging Rock, or a drama about a plumber terrorizing a woman, and they're all they're appealing because they play into genre conventions, and he kind of makes genre films out of what feel like inherently dramatic ideas. Like when I say dramatic, I mean the genre uh, that, that it, you know, in anyone else's hands, it could be a straight drama but he makes you know the pl- the plumber feels like a hitchcockian thriller and i, I noticed that watching uh, his short film homesdale that features a butcher who insists he's really a rock star plum the plumber has a plumber who insists that he's really a musician this is just his day job and uh, i was wondering if that was uh, if if we was surrounded by people aspiring artists uh, who you know who didn't want to acknowledge their day jobs and uh, and everyone had dreams of being a rock star I guess yeah yeah there's a great story I heard actually uh, about Holmesdale and this kind of links to your your point here where <laughs> I think he was at the Cannes Film Festival with the Cars at Eight Paris and he talks about meeting Hitchcock <laughs> and going up to Hitchcock and saying oh Mr Hitchcock I, I, I'm a huge fan of your work and I I, I have to make a, a, a uh, an admission here, a confession. I, I made a film called Homesdale that is has a scene that is basically, you know, a scene ripped off out of Psycho. And Hitchcock said, "There, there, dear boy, it's all right. It's all right." <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of kind of forgave him. <laughs> 
which I thought was a great story. Holmesdale has yeah. to be the earliest example of uh, of someone uh, ripping off the shower scene. Yeah, so. I, exactly. What it, it probably was, and I think it was unashamed. It was it was bald faced steal. You know, it's kind of like stealing from two thousand and one. You know, you can't really steal from it. <laughs> well, you can steal from it. It's, it's stealing. It's not reappropriate. It's it's blatant stealing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's not reinvention. It's just theft. <laughs> and then the uh, the the. One of the quintessential Australian films of all time, Gallipoli, in 1981. Yeah, um, yeah. That was that was a film he had trouble getting funded, and actually got money from Rupert Murdoch, whose uh, whose father. The, you know, there's a huge history about his father as a war correspondent, and the role he played in getting news back to Australia, and how that basically changed uh, the outcome of the war. So this was something that you know, was very personal to Murdoch. And Gallipoli is just an, an extraordinary film which kind of, kind of punctures the, the idea of war as this heroic thing. You know, it's, it's very much a post-Vietnam war about World War One. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I actually watched it recently. I did a documentary with Sam Neill called Why Anzac, and we, we, we actually talk about Gallipoli in that film. And I watched it again just very recently, and I was, I was amazed at how the film hasn't dated and in fact, it is still the seminal Anzac movie because it's really not about Gallipoli as such. It's not about the battle uh, and it's not about April 25th. It's really about the, the, the madness and the sort of the, the blindnesses that, that war um, creates. And it's a magnificent film. And I remember when it came out, I think what it was in 1980, it was an event movie. I remember I was at high school and I bought that there was this beautiful screenplay. It was the David Winnington screenplay you could buy in paperback and it was it had all the stills and it was the script. It was the shooting script. And I poured over that and read it and reread it and it was a beautiful script. And um, then going to see the film and connecting the script to the to the to the images I was seeing on screen and going, Wow, this is masterful stuff. And again, completely 100% purely Australian, you know, and it was epic and it was vast. It had scope and it, and, and, and the emotion at the end, that scene, that's that, that end scene with Mel Gibson running through the trenches, trying to save Archie. It breaks my heart every time I see it. Mm. It's such a, such a beautiful moment. And this is the thing that Peter, I think defines all of Peter Weir's films and and, and and it starts to really define them as he as he starts to mature and starts to develop as a filmmaker. He finds this this this, which is what I try and do uh, myself, is this kind of emotional core, this emotional center, this thing that audiences love. And I love it as an audience member. I love being moved. I love being taken somewhere emotionally that I'm not normally taken in a film. I think that's the power of cinema. That's the power of movies. Is that you can laugh, you can be shown incredible spectacle and that's all entertaining but the great films are the ones that move you and that sort of change you that affect you and that that those changes um that you take on throughout your life so when i look at gallipoli i was you know turning i was a teenager and starting to realize what this meant you know these were these young men who were just a few years older than me going to war going on this adventure and it kind of becoming this nightmare and it becoming something that it not only affected them but affected a country or affected us. And I think Gallipoli taps into whatever it is, that trauma that, that Gallipoli created within the country. And I think that's why it's such a powerful film and why it's still such a powerful film and why it has such resonance because it's ultimately talking about a truth. It's talking about the tragedy of that, of, of that war and of war in general. Mm. 
So yeah, that's that's when I that's when Peter Weir I think became a great filmmaker. You know, that's when he really started to really. I think there was no one else like him in Australia at that time mm. making films of on that level of that level. And I, and I wonder if that's the film that really got him properly noticed in America, because from this point on, you know, his the last film he sort of made in Australia, or at least partly in Australia, was. Uh, 82's The Year of Living Dangerously. Yeah, Mel Gibson as a war correspondent. Yeah, well, uh, well, I think famously Gallipoli was the film that uh, got Mel Gibson discovered by the Americans. Mm. You know, that was the film. I think, any, you know, I was just reading about this recently. I think Mel Gibson went over to America reluctantly, kind of half-heartedly, thinking that it was a bit of a crapshoot, that, you know, it was a bit of a lottery. But um, clear, you can see in Gallipoli, you can see his charisma just ooze out of every frame. And I think... I think for both him and Peter Weir, it was it was a catapulting film that I think really got them, yeah, got grabbed the international stage's attention, mm. definitely. And yeah, the Year of Living Dangerously. Again, I remember seeing the trailer for that at the cinema, going, "Wow, what's this? This is the new Peter Weir film." These great helicopter shots of, and this is Indonesia, this is Asia, this is right next to us. Of course, of course, he should be making a film in Asia because we are part of Asia. And he was again such a pioneer, such an as I said, this this filmmaking adventurer who was sort of going, you always starting from Australia but reaching further outwards. And um, again, I watched um, Year of Living Dangerously about two years ago when I was on my Peter Weir jag, and it still hangs up. It's a great film. It's a really great film because I, I actually worked a lot in Indonesia in the over the last sort of well, ten years ago doing TV commercials over there and it kind of got under my skin I sort of broke through the bamboo curtain and there's a sensuality about Indonesia and about Asia in general Vietnam and Malaysia and um, Thailand and uh, Cambodia that I love and uh, it's clearly something I think that Peter Weir also loved because he was interesting he, he was an interesting guy he traveled I think he went for a gap he had a gap year before he started making films and traveled a lot and actually went to Turkey and went to Gallipoli mm-hmm. swam in the water there and and I think, you know, this desire to sort of make films outside of Australia sort of started manifesting itself in films like um, The Year of Living Dangerously. And he's, he's really able to capture the sort of the essence of, of, of a foreign land, the way that all outsiders can, you know, the way that the, the greatest films about Australia are not made by Australians, you know, like Walk About and Wake and Fright. You know, I think Peter Weir was doing the same thing, you know, by working over there. What's the fish out of water thing? Uh, because he is the quintessential fish-out-of-water director, and from Year of Living Dangerously, that becomes the the core theme of his films, and it's never better illustrated than in, than in 85's Witness, with, you know, Harrison Ford as, was a New York detective who has to go basically in hiding in an Amish community. Well, exactly, and and this is the thing. This is what's great. This is this is him, again, doing what he does really well, working, taking a, what is a standard sort of genre film, really. I mean, it, it's like a... TV movie of the week movie, really, mm. when you look at it on one level, but just that that odd collision of that Amish community and this character, and what in any lesser hands it would just be really bog standard, you know. Yeah. But through Peter Weir's eyes and through his handling, there's so many beautiful subtleties, and he really gets into. I love the way he, you know, as a filmmaker, I think he gets fascinated by his subjects and by the material, and you could really sense that Witness was meticulously researched and meticulously pieced together, and he gets inside the subject matter rather than just on top of it. I think as filmmakers, we sort of think we're making films about subjects because we read about them, but there's yet another level that you go to. I think Kubrick did the same thing where, you know, they become obsessive and they immerse themselves in the subject and they start to explore 
through their research um, every facet of that 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 subject, and then uh, have the time and have the patience to allow that material to sort of present itself dramatically in really really unique ways. And that's something I think these days a lot of filmmakers don't have the time for because there just isn't. It's it's hard to sort of you know devote yourself to one project for that amount of time. But I think Peter Weir was part of that generation of guys who could take their time or at least you know they'd already honed those skills those sort of skills of being able to kind of get the best out of the material um and witness is great you know it's a great film it's it's still again i watched it uh, a couple of years ago and um harrison ford's fantastic and uh it's again it's got this this emotional truth to it it's ultimately really moving and um there's a there's a humanity in it you know that's what i love about his films this, there's always this searching about trying to find out who we are and, and, and what we're capable of and and uh, where where are we going. It's, um, yeah, they're very, again, I keep using the word inspiring, but I, that film came out when I was, just, when I was starting um, film school and um, this was the pinnacle of the Australian film industry now. It was shot by John Seale working in the American system and it's when the American system, when the studio system, they were making really interesting films even within the studio system. Uh, and it was a golden, that, I think it was the last golden era for for Hollywood and for Australians going over there, Australian directors going over there and making films um, on their own terms in that system. Did you still stick with him through, you know, his the next period of his life? Were you still first in line for, like, Mosquito Coast and Dead Poets and Green Card? Yeah, well, interestingly, like, Mosquito Coast, I saw Mosquito Coast at film school. John Seal came and showed us a preview copy even before it was released. So wow. it was very exciting. We, we, as students, we all sat down and watched it. And... I loved it. I went, what is this film? This film is really... Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of... You know, I think critically it wasn't really that well received. But I actually... I want to watch it with my son. I want to I want to actually watch it with him. That's um, a good film to kind of... We're always trying to find films to watch with our boys. So I, you've reminded me. I'm going to write that down. Mosquito Coast. I've got to watch that again with my, with my boy because I think it's such a... It's um, it's a great again. It's a great subject. It's a great idea. This this guy that goes off the grid, takes his family to the Amazon jungle, and like Kurtz, kind of goes mad. And uh, and you know, it's great cast: Helen Mirren, River Phoenix, again shot by the shot by the legendary John Seale. And again, it's Peter Weir. I think, in a funny kind of way, that film is a, is 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 the sort of definitive Peter Weir film in that it's about an extreme situation. A really intriguing kind of concept or, or dramatic conceit about this man who, who who decides to sort of take his family and live out this adventure, and then also that hubris, the hubris of yeah. that, how that unravels, and it's yeah, it's it's a it's a really underrated film, I think. I, I was just wondering because there's a lot made of the fact that uh, Ed Harris's character in Truman Show is, you know, the the godlike director, and whether that's he's he's essentially playing Peter Weir, but I was wondering if. Weir was like Harrison Ford's character in Mosquito Coast was Weir as well, where he was being self-critical of somebody who wants to go into a foreign land and create something great. And yet the, the character is almost villainous. He's the protagonist, but he's also the antagonist and he doesn't paint himself in a very positive light. No, no. And I think, I think that's what's I always like about Peter Weir's films is that they're, they're complex. They look at characters as characters, not as just sort of ciphers for the story. They look at, you know, they're always character based and they look at the, the, the contrast and the conflicts of a character like that. And again, that's such a human thing. You know, it's the same with Harrison Ford and Witness, this, this kind of 
this, this sort of urban cop that's thrust into this Amish community and starts seeing the world from a different perspective. And I think this is the thing he does. You know, he's looking at looking at worlds from new, from fresh perspectives, and and looking at it both. You know, looking at both the good and bad of that. And like Kubrick, you know, looking at human nature and who we are as humans, and looking at our flaws, and our flaws uh, are kind of what doom us, but they also what make us beautiful as well. <laughs> You know, without our flaws, we wouldn't be the the wonderful creatures that we are. At the same time, we want to sort of evolve from our flaws. So I love that struggle. I love that struggle. And Skinner Coast is really, I think, a film that kind of taps into that 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 conflict. Mm. And uh, yeah, then his, his next few films very much seem on the outside like fairly standard studio films. You know, Dead Poets, Green Card. Fearless, which are quite quite complex films. I mean, Dead Poets is often characterised as being Robin Williams doing John Wayne impressions for you know two hours, when really it's like I think maybe four seconds of the film in total. But uh, I know he makes very unconventional films that appear on the outside. Yeah, they, very... they, they're what I call Trojan horse films. You know, they mm. sort of they, they come in through the gates. Everyone thinks, oh wow, great, okay, yeah, this will be easy, and then armies are let out at night armies of thought are yeah. let out after you've watched the films like i love dead poet society i think it's a masterful film i think it's with dead poets i think he finally became an american filmmaker you know because it's a very american film mm. um on that sort of whatever you want to call it that I hate using the word feel good but it, it it pushes all those buttons it has all the tropes of those those sorts of american films that started to kind of come out at that time that were both commercial but at the same time had a bit of integrity to them again and they don't make those kinds of films anymore you know those films you've got to realize that um dead poets was a mainstream film you know it came out had a big release had robin williams but that kind of film just doesn't get made by the hollywood system anymore mm. so i look at them now as kind of these strange artifacts um dead poets green card fearless the truman show all those films were big studio films, but they don't really exist anymore now. And each one of them, you know, I think they're all great films. I mean, Green Card is probably, I must have been, I've only seen it once in a long time ago, and I, and I probably shouldn't even comment on it because I, 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 it's sort of, I found that the oddest choice that he'd made, and it almost like a film he was making in between films or something. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to watch it again now. But I think, again, even in Green Card, there is this sense that it's actually about deeper, it has a deeper level, it has a deeper meaning to it. Mm. But I watched Dead Poets again, and look, it's kind of, it's it's still a really good film. It's still really moving, and it's, again, I watched it with my son. It's a great, you know, what I love about Peter Weir films is they're great great films to show your kids. And what, <laughs> they're about adult subjects, but I think children can relate to them because mm. they're about, I think they're about things that, children find fascinating in adults and trying to work out who adults are. And I think they're beautiful like that. They're really good films. Like The Truman Show, especially. Mm. That's a great film to watch with your kids because it's, it's about play and it's about pretend, but it's also about truth and it's about who you are and what's important. It's, it's a morality tale. And, um, yeah, again, I watched that about uh, three months ago with my boy and uh, it's so prescient. It's still, yeah. and I love the way it's kind of arch and it sort of lives in its own universe. It's sort of like, it's a parallel universe kind of film and it's still so relevant, obviously. Mm. Reality TV and social media and everything now is, is, is sort of the norm. But it's this odd little film that still kind of runs along in parallel yeah. <laughs> with the world now. Um, it, it's prophetic. It's probably more relevant now than it was when it came out. It's, uh... Yeah, 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a great film because it's really ultimately about you know peeling away all this bullshit and trying to really really get down to the essence of who you are as a person and what mm. and what is important in life. Yeah, and again, you know, these are big. He's a you know he's he's dealing with big big themes here and fearless especially. You know, we're going a, a little bit all over the shop here, but the, these right. films all kind of talk to each other in that period. Mm. And I'll saw, I saw fearless at the cinema. I went to see it. I was so excited to see it. Because um, I'm obsessed with uh, with air crashes. I, I know everyone. You know, I've, I've got this sort of almost savant like. <laughs> I can I can I can tell you the statistics of every major plane crash since 1965, and wow. I'm obsessed with them for some perverse reason. And I'd seen there was a really great plane crash in a film called Alive that Frank Marshall directed around about the same time, and I just think the plane crash in this was something I was really really looking forward to seeing. I love the way he held off showing it and mm. i loved i loved this is the thing i think again about peter weir uh, and something that i don't think he gets gets enough credit for is his use of music you know right from the yes. beginning picking hanging rock to um to gallipoli with Jare's music to witness which is the, where i discovered gorecki you know he mm. used this fantastic gorecki piece at the end and i thought what is that music and i had to find out and i went oh my god what an amazing idea what a, what an inspired choice absolutely that piece of music that that whatever it is that sort of ring cycle um that sort of cyclic music that gorecki wrote i think in the 40s i think after the war mm. second world war and it's an extraordinary piece of modern classical music and that's what you know like kubrick again you know we really believed in the power of music and an image and, and took did some bold things. You know, it's funny, you look at Gallipoli now and the oxygen music, it kind of it sort of doesn't work, but it kind of does because it's kind of really retro and kind of daggy. And back then it was really cool, but it's sort of, it's got out of date. And now it's kind of, it's sort of almost like retro, you know, retrospectively cool well, again. <laughs> well, most, yeah, most of his films seem to, to lurch between uses of classical music and this kind of electronica type style that's used in the score. And then he'll pivot between that and great classical music like I imagine him and I don't know if this is true I'd love to know the 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 secrets behind him choosing music for his films because it's like you know so much is made of Tarantino going through his 70s record collection and picking music before he writes a film and I, I wonder if Weir does that with classical music you know uh, on Fond du Temple Sand, Gallipoli and Fantasia in a theme in Master and Commander and Beethoven's Ninth and Dead Poets and they just he, he picks at least one or two incredible pieces of music and deploys them just in the most extraordinary manner. And he, he doesn't crank them up to 11. He just lets them sit just under the, um, the diegetic sounds. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Kubrick is obviously an influence because there are some very deliberate choices of classical music used the same way that Kubrick would mm. or Kubrick did. But I think, you know, I think he was always, always listening to music and he was always contemporary. You know, you look at Witness, and there's you know the U two uh, the U two track. I can't remember the Streets of No Name, I yeah. think, or whatever. And you know, and that's that just that opening riff by the Edge, and he uses that really interestingly. You know, that scene where um, Rosie Perez kind of you know is in the car, and 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 uh, Jeff Bridges sort of reenacts the crash by mm. doing the car crash. It's, again, that's a, such a bold idea to use that. And I know for a fact, like I think when he was making a film called The Way Back. Friends of mine who were in a band called uh, who were called Single Gun Theory were approached by him for one of their tracks to do some music. So I think his kids had heard them 
And so he was obviously listening to music all the time and listening to contemporary music and always trying to kind of find ways of using it. And I was so thrilled when my friend said, oh, Peter Weir's contact. Peter Weir, really? Oh, my God, fuck. Jeez, is he coming over? You know, <laughs> can I be around, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, I, don't, I think they ended up, I think he ended up not using their music or was using it in the edit or something like that. Mm. I can't remember. But anyway, but yeah, he's. Um, I always think when I'm trying to kind of temper film or, or or work on a film, I go, "What would Peter Weir do here? What kind of crazy? Let's do, let's do a crazy Peter Weir choice here." Mm. Then usually the producers go, "What's that?" That's <laughs> <laughs> me being a bit Peter Weir here. <laughs> Take that off. That's terrible. <laughs> so maybe one day, one day I'll I'll be able to get my 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 Peter Weir cue in there somewhere. Definitely. <laughs> I. I noticed that there, there is a thing he starts doing. You were talking about the plane crash, holding off on the plane crash. You don't see it until quite late in the film. You know, Green Card does this the same way. It starts after the wedding, basically, after they've just married each other for the Green Card. And it takes a long, you know, a, a fair while before you figure out what's happened. You see people, this beautiful opening to, to Fearless, where they're walking through the fields, dazed, and it takes a few moments before you discover that they've just escaped a, a plane crash. Truman Show was amazing. When I saw it in 98, I, I, I was amazed that I was expecting uh, when the light falls, you know, that, that moment they use in the trailer where he discovers the light that falls from the sky, you know, the ser- labeled Sirius. And well, I saw that in the trailer and I thought, oh, that's going to be, you know, the act two pivot. That's when it all starts to unravel. And it's almost the opening scene. And he just, he throws you in. There's no careful setups there's no gentle okay this is how we introduce you to it to a world and these characters it just bang straight away opening title and you're in the middle of it and it keeps you it's that that old adage that you can confuse an audience but you know but don't ever bore them and you're instantly like on the front foot trying to figure out hey where am i what's going on yeah no it's great it's it's such a simple device it's such a simple thing that people forget in screenwriting especially as an audience member i love not knowing what's going on Mm. you know i love the mystery of a story and i love not being able to work it out you know so many films now i think everyone complains about this is that a lot of films uh you just know the beats you know the you know the tropes you know the architecture even before you've seen it because it's so familiar and that's what's great about movies is that it's not it's the not knowing and being surprised. I mean, that's the magic of any kind of story is where is this going to go? Where is it? How does how do all these little pieces connect? And that's the joy and the pleasure and the magic of, of, of movies. And Peter Weir is someone who's known that right from the very start, you know, even picking Hanging Rock. And I love the fact. You know, he talked, I remember again, saw an interview with him on 60 Minutes years ago when he was still, I think, working in Australia. And he talked about one of his favorite stories as a kid was the Mary Celeste. And the beauty of the Mary Celeste is that no one still knows what happened. And it's the not knowing is what is wonderful. Yeah. And that's hanging rock. It's, it's, I mean, you know, if JJ Abrams was around, you know, it's the sort of film he would probably made in the seventies, you know, it's, it's, it's a great film about not knowing and the not knowing again is such human it's so human, you know, it's, we don't, we, things aren't always easily explained and there's beauty and mystery. It's what David Lynch talks about as well. You know, the, the mysteries are beautiful. They point to a deeper truth because the truth is unknowable and that is the truth. 
So that's what I love is there's this sort of, again, this very spiritual element to his work that stems, I think, from that deep need. I think we have, we have as humans to have mysteries, to have every, to not have everything solved because it's, it's who we are. It's, 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 it's what defines us and it, what keeps us, I think, alive and engaged with the world. So, you know, that's, that's why I love his work because it, it, it's still, there's a wonder to it. You know, and that's why I love showing it to my kid because I want him to sort of have that same feeling I had when I watched when I first saw his work. Mm. Although that's a that that's a great line to go out on. I, I can't uh, leave you without at least mentioning Master and Commander, Far Side of yeah. the World, which I, I believe to be a complete masterpiece. And uh, and every time I watch it, I, I think it can't be as good as I remember it, and it always is. What uh, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, I agree. I agree. I, I kind of I look at that film and I go right, okay. This is someone in their 60s, right? I think he was in his 60s when he made it, at his peak as a filmmaker. You know, all those years of filmmaking and, and work. And then there was a film he made with Russell Boyd. It's the first film I think he made with Russell Boyd in a long time. And Russell Boyd obviously shot his earlier films like The Last Wave and Picking Hanging Rock. And it's Russell Boyd also at the peak of his powers. Mm. So it's these two guys still vital and using everything they know to create a masterful film. I mean, you know, it is a great film. And again, I watched it with my boy and he loved it. You know, it was just, and I've always grown up, you know, with the love of the, the ocean and I love boats and especially I love that period of sailing. And, you know, despite Russell Crowe, even though I think Russell Crowe is a great actor, you know, I think he made that film, he gave it the gravitas, and even though it's kind of a kooky performance in some way, it still kind of all works, and Paul Bethany's great, and it's, there's moments in that film, you know, that are just breathtaking, the scene where the, the officer commits suicide, because he thinks he's the curse, and you just see his body go down in that ocean, it's just like, oh my god, what a, what a moment, and that film is just full of so many beautiful moments mm. and i just really hope he makes another film i mean i the way back you know yep. is it's, it's an odd film i saw it and i feel that that film is the film he intended to make there's something strange with that film it's like it was lobotomized somewhere along the way I yeah think the, i think the film the film exists out there but there's something about the way it's edited it's something very odd it's like it's literally it's, it's a film that's kind of got sort of memory loss or something there's something odd there's like chunks of it missing because i was very excited when i heard about it some friends of mine were working on it doing the, the effects for it and they were telling me about it and telling me about his process and telling me how he's really old school he only uses faxes he doesn't use emails he uh he's really into seeing everything he's a very sort of analog kind of filmmaker still and this was you know not that long ago and i thought wow this one's gonna be great it's gonna be like peter weird does terence malick and you know i thought this is gonna be great and then when i finally saw it i went whoa what? it was like it was it wasn't him directing it it was odd it was like someone like an imposter but obviously you know no one sets out to make a bad film and i think peter weird obviously set out to make a great movie but something happened there and i don't know if it's entirely his fault mm. Well, I mean, if, if I'd love to know the story anyway. Yeah, and look, yeah. if if the way back is uh, is sort of the low point of of your career, you're probably doing something really right. Yeah, true, true. And I, I've heard he's also was trying to make Shantaram for a while with Johnny yeah. Depp. That fell through. So yeah. I think he's up there in Palm Beach somewhere, probably you know, not really sweating it, probably <laughs> enjoying what he's done and picking the right project. So I really hope he makes one more film because uh, yeah. yeah, we need him. We need we need him to. We need guys like that and girls like that to, 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 to make movies like that. Absolutely. Kriv, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. So that was our chat with Kriv Stenders about Peter Weir. Uh, we're back with Sophie 
uh, listen to me talk like this is a radio show and we've got multiple lines coming in. Uh, Soph, did you, uh, yeah, yeah what, what'd you make of that? What did you make of Peter Weir? This is a really naive thing to say. I hadn't really fully taken on board the Australianness of Peter Weir. You know, I'd seen Picnic at Hanging Rock and Gallipoli both like in my teens. I've seen them multiple times. And in some way, it had never really occurred to me like, he's a huge part of that story of the new wave of Australian cinema and there's a kind of essential Australianness. So while I was I was listening to what Criv was saying, I'm playing like we were on the radio as well. I was thinking about where does that manifest in his portrayals of very um, quintessentially American stories, you know, thinking about like the use of Whitman in Dead Poet Society and what that film is doing with ideas of American masculinity and, and American white patrician culture. And it, is he so brilliant at telling stories about America like the Truman Show? Because he does stand outside them mm. while sharing like that, the, you know, dominant Anglophone culture. He has just that angle enough to look in such a visionary way um, in the late 90s and see what's happening with early reality television and technology and and make a sh- something as piercing as the as the Truman show like i think that kind of dual nationality aspect i'd really underestimated in in what makes him such a a director who moves between genres and move, has moved across different subject matter um and and ways of making films I had never seen The Last Wave before. I'd never even heard of it. It's not a film that seems to have translated to the UK mm-hmm. very well. But when we were preparing for the podcast, it came up as a recommendation in an article in Sci-Fi Now <laughs> about the new wave of Australian horror films, which also, it was sort of talking about five cult classics that deserve to be revived. And one was The Last Wave and one was Bedevil. And I thought, well, if it's on the level with Tracy Morfat's Bedevil, like mm-hmm. this is going to the top of my Peter Weir viewing list. And I loved it. Mm. And there's a moment in it, so the first moment when the two main characters, David, who's played by Richard Chamberlain, who is a corporate tax lawyer, that all-time great hero of uh, of cinema, (laughs) and Chris, who's played by David Mm Gulpillil, who is one of five Aboriginal men who've been accused of a murder. The first time they meet in real life, and this look passes between them, and it's one of the most electrifying looks I have ever seen in cinema Mm. and it's partially about these two cultures brushing up against each other and partially about accepting that dream states can be real but it's also a really passionate look between two men and it made me think about Dead Poet Society and Fearless, even The Mosquito Coast and Year of Living Dangerously and Master and Commander and his interest in what goes on between people of the same gender like that's definitely there in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm. I don't know any lesbian of my acquaintance who does not consider that like one of their favourite teenage (laughs) films for sure. We all want to disappear into that rock but Seeing it there in the last wave, and it's such an amazing performance from David Gorpalil, made me think about his interest in these kind of hidden passions that remain hidden. And when they surface, like in Dead Pirate Society, with, with Neil deciding he wants to be an actor, they have to be punished. They have to be 
put away. Yeah. And, you know, that happens in Master and Commander as well. And the fact that he's really an actor's director, like he gets performances, particularly out of unknown child actors like Lucas Haas, but then out of people who are on their way to becoming big stars like Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson, he treats them all the same. And he gets incredible performances out of all of them. Mm. I think, yeah, that, that outsider aspect, I, I think you're spot on. And that, that's certainly a, a massive part of what informs not just his post-Australian films, but even the ones in Australia. I mean, right back to the, the Cars That Ate Paris, you know, that, mm. that's all about outsiders. Yeah, it, it's, I, I've been trying to figure out for years what the secret was to his films because there didn't seem to be a common thread that I could see. Watching them all in succession, I feel like... Like, on a very sort of basic, why does this appeal to audiences? Why are we so drawn to his films? I think it's the way in which he embraces the high-concept film. Most, not all, but most of his films pivot on a high-concept. What if someone was the subject of a TV show and didn't know it? Mm. What if a detective went undercover in an Amish community? What if two people who married for a green card fell in love? What if Robin Williams was dropped in the middle of a strict institution? Within, within their, their respective genres, these are very high concepts, but he treats them with such a gentle hand. You know, there are so many times mm-hmm. he could get away with really dropping the hammer and cranking it up to 11. The ideas are big, but the execution is small. And I think just on a very broad, broad brush kind of way, that's why his films work so well. I guess as I was watching them... And this is this is linked, I think, to the outsider thing and maybe to, I don't know, to the high concept thing. Let's see if we can weave it all together. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that his protagonists, if they share anything in common, it's doubt. They're figures who doubt themselves. Like, even if you think about Fearless, mm-hmm. maybe that film stands out because it's sort of the opposite. But they're films about doubt, these characters who have access to these communities that are at once, like very different from the norm and seem wonderful in some ways there is a very romantic element to something like dead poet society or witness Mm. or even mosquito coast he's very interested in these moments where these cultures brush up against each other or the last wave and the richness that comes from paying attention to the idea that another way of thinking or another way of being might be possible but then because the protagonists are doubting it never turns into avatar it's never like okay i'm gonna jump in and and go after the unobtainium and everything is awesome and there's this kind of not skeptical element but thoughtful element that i think is really rare in cinema one critic i read said peter weir is a rare director because he makes films for adults Hmm. and that really made me think because it's true like that is not seen as your major money market anymore you know it's like the 15 to 25 explosion action but he he wants to engage a more complex aspect of you it's not that you can't do action i mean master and commander was shot in the same tank as titanic and it's shot on that same ambitious scale but Mm. he wants you to think about things like loyalty and duty and institutions at the same time and maybe because audiences are are starved of that you know that's part of why his films have been so popular but maybe because cinema has moved away from that so much at least anglophone cinema it's why he struggled in in the last decade or so yeah it does seem like the type of film that he makes just does not get made anymore and Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear he's in development. A film called The Keep, I don't know anything about it, but I'm wondering how he continues, really. Like, what, what, what are his next few films going to look like? And, mm. yeah, um, I certainly hope, hope he makes more of them. All right, so uh, next month we are going to be talking about a legendary director whose name was mentioned at least once in this month's show. See if you can guess who it is. Sophie, can Will you guess? Will he be making a cameo appearance on the show? Ooh, ooh that certainly narrows it down. Uh, <laughs> but until then, Sophie, enjoy the rest of your trip. I'll talk to you when Thanks. you're back in the mother country. Absolutely. And we'll see the rest of you next month. 